sermon. This could be a, a blooper. A strange man with a powerful message. <laughs> <laughs> The season of the Advent, the season of hope and peace and love and joy. And let's be honest, sometimes this guy, you just heard him, he can be a bit of a bummer, can he? He can be a real bummer, this John the Baptizer, breaking into my season. Who is he? Nervous, he's got to break into my season of good cheer. Here I am just minding my own business and I'm making my list, checking it twice, hanging stockings by the chimney with care. <laughs> baking Christmas cookies, basking in the glow of my Christmas lights. I'm trying to enjoy, as Andy Williams reminds me every year once again, how it is the most wonderful time of the year, right? And then every year, second year of Advent, I have to deal with this guy, John the Baptizer, this camel hair wearing, locust dipping in honey, eating madman, dashing out the wilderness, screaming at me to repent. Folks, this is just not putting me in the Christmas spirit. It's not helping with my Christmas mood. John can be a bit of a bummer, can he? He can be a real bummer. But every year, like that uncle that you hope would not show up to the Christmas party, <laughs> he comes. Every year at this time, generally, the only time we hear from him throughout the year, he comes bursting forth with this massive, thrawing crowd of followers, a prophetic blast from the past to remind us that, well, the way we are going just might not be so good. It might not be so good, but the good news, John the Baptist says, and you heard it, is, is that you can still change. You can still repent, is his word. You can still orient your life to the one that God called you to. There is still time, John says, every year to transform yourself. And I, I guess in all seriousness then, when I joke it aside, the message is really kind of why I like this guy. Because actually he reminds me of another guy whose name starts with J. Jesus, whose birth and vision that we have symbolically await for yet again this month. You just heard a story of him, but just who is John the Baptist that comes screaming into our Christmas holiday season with not a bottle of Chardonnay, but locusts and honey? Who is this guy? Did he actually exist? Who thinks he actually existed? <laughs> not a lot of you. Wow. Because he kind of seems like a cartoon character, doesn't he? Like most of you don't even believe he existed. He's a creation. Well, let me set the record straight. Today, we're going to set it all straight. John 
the baptizer actually lived. And he actually breathed. And he actually did many of the things that were recorded in that story that Peg just read. How do we know? How do we know? Well, start with his life and work is recorded in all four Gospels. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. As mentioned in detail by the Jewish historian Josephus, a very important source in understanding the context of the times that the Gospels were written in. And more importantly, this is what's really important. We know John was real because he actually presents a problem. He's a bit of a problem for the gospel writers and the early Christians that claimed Jesus was the Messiah. Now, there are a couple issues around this. This gets into baptism, too, so bear with me. First, is that fact that Jesus, if you go on in the story, you know what comes next, even though that seems more like a Latin message, but you know what happens next after, after John comes screaming out, calling people names, he baptizes Jesus, right? That's the first problem. Jesus is baptized by John. Generally, the one baptizing in this time was seen as spiritually superior to the one that was being baptized. So it's hard to believe. Put yourselves back in, in their shoes or whatever they wore back then. Sandals. Their sandals. It's hard to believe that the gospel writers, they're trying to tell the story of Jesus as the Son of God, the sinless Lamb of God, born of a virgin would make up a story in which Jesus submitted to baptism at all, yet alone, especially by an otherwise spiritually inferior person such as John. Just wouldn't do that. Why would you do that? In fact, if you look at the other accounts of John and Jesus, the writers obviously take great pains to make sure that people understand, they go all their way, to make sure people understand that Jesus is superior. In Luke's visitation story, which we will delve into next week, we'll hear of Mary and Elizabeth, both pregnant, getting together. And what is John doing? He's leaping in the womb, right? He's so excited. He's near Jesus. He's leaping in the womb. John was being subordinated already in those early, early stories to Jesus. And then if you, if you fast forward to the Gospel of John, which was written much, much later, the last one of all the Gospels, we're never even told, going back to baptism, that, that John baptized Jesus. He posed a problem. He was a big problem for the developing Jesus tradition as a superior forerunner, and the authors, therefore, would never have created stories that posed this problem. They just, they wouldn't have done it. That's a solid indicator that John was real and not a creation. And if that's not enough, second, Go so back to baptism. Is the fact that baptism from John, again, which happens right after what you heard from, from Peg, if we're not breaking it up seasonally, was for what? The forgiveness of sins, right? It was for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' later tradition unfolded was believed to be sinless, right? So why would he need to be baptized at all? All this evidence tells us that we know John was real. Because there's no way, again, the early writers would have inserted him into the plot because he presents a real problem for Jesus and his identity and his role as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Word of God, who was there in the beginning. It's the greatest scholar of all time. John Dominic Crossan says, the Christian tradition is clearly uneasy with John the Baptist, 
but he doesn't, and they don't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Now we all know that, that John 2 was powerful. We're told us. We were told of, that all, not just some people, some random throng of followers, but all, all of Jerusalem was coming out to see and hear him. He's a pretty popular guy. He had quite a following. My personal belief, it's just me, is that Jesus was a follower of John the Baptist. Likely one drawn from the hillsides to hear the popular firebrand preacher talk about a new way of being in the world, one that threatened the powers of the time that shook them. And he was killed for it. John was killed for his message. And only then did Jesus take up his mantle after John was executed by Herod. Well, John was such a threat, in fact, and here's more proof for all you naysayers, <laughs> they did exist. Josephus tells us that Herod felt that he had no option but to silence John. And to silence him. Insurrection was in the air every time he opened his mouth. Every time he spoke, he had serious power. And folks, one more, one more thing about John the baptizer, which I think is why many don't believe he existed. He didn't really wear camel hair. <laughs> any locusts. That's simply to place him in the prophetic tradition with all the other great prophets. In this case, he's being compared to Elijah, who we are told also wore camel hair and a, and a belt. We were supposed to recognize John, not as the Messiah, not as the one we're waiting for, but as a prophet, more in terms of Elijah. That paves the way for Jesus. And the locust and honey image is just to make that point. He was a prophet, for prophets did not eat meat, and they never drank wine. So much for that bottle of Chardonnay he was going to bring. <laughs> locusts and honey, or even more likely, something that was called the locust honey tree, also helps remind us that John stands in that prophetic tradition, is to put him in his place, so to speak. So he is not put on par with Jesus, who is not just a prophet, but the very Son of God. So overall, there's your tour. John, though real and powerful, was reworked into a prophet, preparing a way for one more powerful, one whose sandals, he says, he was not even fit to untie. This shows the gospel writers' creativity in shaping these people and these events to fit the narrative that they are trying to convey. It's a testament just how good they were. That's how good they were at storytelling. We need to always keep that in mind when we're reading Scripture. And John the Baptizer's story is a perfect example of that. I offer this history of John the Baptist because I think all too often, because of the nature of his problematic character, the strangeness of his ways, his message can tend to get discounted as he is simply subordinated to Jesus and his birth at Christmas. But I don't want to argue that, no, we need John. It's not just some crazy old man. We need John and his message greatly. And although this idea of repentance seems to fit, again, the season of Lent much better, and it can kind of strike us when we hear it, it's kind of like this old paradigm idea 
Does it just sound old paradigm? Repent? It's actually really foundational to the season, the season of Advent as well. And John helps us to understand that. That's his role, to repent. As John meant, is a different concept than we, we generally think of, such as, oh, what? Feeling guilty, going down on your knees, right? And feeling guilty and sorry for your sins and begging and pleading to God for forgiveness. And God, I can just hear Jimmy Swaggart, <laughs> other television preachers down, screaming, I'm repenting. I'm repenting. I'm pleading for mercy. Jesus is coming. Well, Jimmy Swagger has some pretty interesting things to repent, if you remember that story, didn't he? <laughs> for another sermon, and that's got to be a no-kid sermon, I think. That's uh, <laughs> just reporting facts, folks. Facts. Sorry, Jimmy Swagger, if you hear that. <laughs> Back to John. <laughs> I digress. What John is calling us to do is work into the Greek meaning of the word, which means to go beyond the mind that you have to enter into a new mind, a new way of seeing, or simply to turn around. To repent literally means to begin seeing differently. Love that. It's kind of like the peace, the peace brain. Yeah. Going back to the peace brain. Preach it. Amen. I heard it was a great sermon. I heard it. It's a great sermon. <laughs> back to the peace brain. That's when it comes to John and his screaming out of the wilderness. He calls on all people then to, when he says repent, is to go beyond your mind's image of the reality that you see before you and turn around and turn around and see a new vision of how you can be and especially to how your nation can be and your world can be. To repent at its core is about rebirth and new life, a new way of seeing and a new way of being. Therefore, John the Baptist role in Advent as opposed to Lent is to orient us, to turn us toward the, the quiet hillsides of the Judean countryside, where the Christ child will soon do something as he screams into the world and breaks into the world with his, with his new way of being, will shake the powers to the ground and replace the world order of war and, and greed and exclusion with a new realm of peace and sharing and, and inclusion. Mm. He's telling us to turn from a past where the rich and the powerful control one's destiny in the world and orient yourself to a radically new destiny that seems unlikely, but that will soon take shape in a dirty little stable or in a cave among the animals under the stars in a tiny manger as as power comes to its fullest strength and the weakness of this newborn baby, as Bill Coffin so wonderfully says, that's what we celebrate in two weeks, as we do every year. The kingdom of God realized in the birth of Jesus and his radical God incarnate vision of just how this world can be. And today, John calls us to turn and to see it and to get ourselves ready for it yet again, as he does every single year. And honestly, folks, we need John's passion for repentance today, don't we? In fact, both of these texts, Isaiah and Mark, are so relevant today. The Isaiah 40 text, I included that, the peg read, because it's really powerful when you read just that, but it's even more powerful when you look at what, you know, I would have had to read the previous 40 chapters, 39 chapters, 
But when you see what came before it, you see that there was just nothing but judgment upon Israel. And, and Isaiah recounted why these Babylonians sacked them in, in 587 BC. That was what happened. They destroyed the temple and sent so many to exile and death and slavery. So verse 40 that Peg just read is this turning point. It's a turning point as Isaiah tells the people that, that God has recognized their repentance as the people have finally turned from their evil ways, having suffered at the hands of these mean Babylonians, and, and how a pathway would now be made straight, bringing them back to their land after so many years away. It's a text of comfort. They come only after a hard, honest look at themselves as a nation and the consequences that it suffered. And that's what's so interesting in this Isaiah text, is that repentance in this case is for an entire nation, not just an individual. And while I don't believe that God intentionally sent the Babylonians to destroy Israel to teach them a lesson and get them to repent, the point is clear that sometimes entire nations are called to put on a new mind and turn from their wicked ways. To repent as John and the prophets of old would tell us. Repentance is personal, yes, but it's also national and it's communal. I was thinking of our own nation as I was writing this yesterday about just where it finds itself right now in a land of seemingly endless and unrepentant systemic sin. Yeah, I think we have a lot of repenting to do as a nation. A lot of crooked paths that need to be made a little more straight. I mean, when we as a nation put foreign children in cages and separate them from their families at the same time that we await in celebration a child from a foreign land in a manger, well, then something is broken. Something is just not right. And we need John screaming at us to repent, screaming in our ear. It's astounding just how antithetical to the way of Jesus that <clears throat> behavior really is. And when we hear of the, the 409th mass shooting of the calendar year, 409th for 2019, the last one in Pensacola on Friday. Was there one yesterday? There might have been. I missed it. We're so desensitized to it. But the 409th was on, was on Friday. Or when we hear of 483 people dead from these mass shootings this year, 483, and 16, over 1,600 wounded. These are stunning statistics. Well, then, we need to put on new minds. And we need to tell John to be coming up out of that water, dripping wet, the fire in his eyes, pointing his fingers squarely at us and telling us to repent as a nation. And we continue to cut SNAP, safety programs for the most vulnerable in our society. I'm talking about supplemental nutrition assistance program, yet we continue to expand an ever-increasingly massive and bloated military budget. John would be right there with a finger in our chest telling us to repent, to change your ways, for that is not the way the Christ child that is coming. And we continue to put our heads in the sand that she heard floor. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> we don't have snow, so it goes in the sand. And pretend that climate 
is not changing. And seas will not rise, and mass migration and hunger will not ensue. And this is just all fake news and hysteria concocted by a bunch of rogue scientists. 90-something percent of all scientists. But we need John calling the broods of vipers and the fools to the carpet of reality with a strong message of repentance. We need John. We need him. We could go on and on like this all day, couldn't we? Point is, we need John and his repentance, and it's called into the world, it's invitation to turn and see the realities and the ugliness of the things that we are a part of. We need this individually for ourselves, individually, and we need it as a nation collectively. We need to see that this idea is integral to Christmas's eggnog and Santa Claus. We need to remember that both John and Isaiah are reminding us, as a favorite theologian of mine, John Burgess points out, that repentance is, quote, not primarily about our standards of moral worthiness, but rather about God's desire to realign us to accord with the coming, uh, to accord with the coming Christ child's life and the Christ child's challenge that will shape the world to its foundations. He goes on to say, and this is important for us to hear today, repentance is not so much about our guilty feelings, it's about God's power to transform us into Christ's image. Repentance is not so much about our guilty feelings. We all get stuck there, don't we? It's about God's power to transform us into Christ's image. Mm. It's about God's desire to realign us with Jesus' coming vision of hope and peace. And for that reason, this new aligning vision of love that is truly the most. That makes this truly the most wonderful time of the year. We need it. This Advent and into this Christmas Eve and beyond, my friends, may John's voice ring loudly in your personal and collective lives as we await Jesus' birth yet again as we enter into a, into a new year. May we do less lamenting this year and less guilt. We don't need that. Who needs guilt? We get enough of that in our lives, don't we? May we do less lamenting and guilt and more repenting, more turning, inspiring and changing, more speaking out and more challenging and leading, for that is truly the call of Christmas. I wish you a blessed, continued, transformative Advent. And let me take that poll again. Who now thinks John the Baptist was real? <laughs> Amen. <laughs>